Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. We are back. We are doing sections, let's see here, I'm looking at it, 37 through 40 today, and... I think we're going to spend most of our time in section 38, as we've been kind of talking beforehand. Mm -hmm. That seems to be where some of the the meat is of of the stuff that we typically talk about and are able to pull out. And, and, you know, 39 and 40, those are are special. (laughs) Don't (laughs) discount 39 and 40. They're in there for a good reason. But, uh, yeah, these are – this is kind of an interesting transition time because, right, with these four sections – we are moving in from December 1830 to January 1831, and so the church is still only about eight months old. It is a young church, and revelations are starting to come more frequent, and this is where Sidney Rigdon and Edward Partridge had come from Kirtland, and they, they had wanted to know who this Joseph Smith was, so they came back out to see Joseph Smith in New York. And this is where the revelation comes, where the Lord says, you know what, now is the time for you to go to what's called the Ohio. And I always love that article there. The <laughs> So the Ohio, it's not just, hey, head out to Ohio or to the whole Ohio Valley or the Ohio, Ohio. It's the Ohio. And so that's how it is throughout the whole, his next few sections. And man, I love that so much. In fact, he, next to the section 37, I've I penned in the Ohio, just because I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, they're referencing the river, and so it's more of a place than a state or territory at this point. So. Yes, it, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I still like <laughs> I still like the Ohio, but in section uh, in section thirty eight, this is just a really fascinating section because it brings in a lot of themes that we've talked about before. There's some a lot of good beatitude discussions in here that we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to just touch on the topic of the prosperity gospel, whether or not that's a thing, how that presents in here. Also talking about wars and loving our loving our brother as ourself and and just a lot of really good things in section 38. There's a, there's a verse here in verse 12 talking about silence that I know you have some really cool things to talk about and to be able to pull back to some previous discussions that we've had. So I'm excited to have that. And then section 39 and 40, this is where James Colville, who was a Methodist minister, he ends up joining, James Colville joins the church. He gets this, this revelation, um, now known as section 39, and the Lord is like, listen, you have joined. I'm happy that you've joined. Now that you've joined, you're called to the work if you want to be called to the work, and I have blessings in store for you. And then you kind of, you turn the page. <laughs> And as soon as you turn the page, it's the exact same month. It's still in January. It's only three verses long. And James has has taken off. <laughs> he's, he's no longer he's no longer there. So he went back to his other congregation. He got baptized and then he's like, well, you know what? I changed my mind. So we'll get there and talk about James a little bit more. But section 37 is pretty short. And I, the main takeaway here is, again, it, this is the transition. Up until this point, we have been in New York. 
that's where everything has happened, right there in the in the Palmyra and the Fayette areas. They've gone down into uh, into Harrisburg, into, into Pennsylvania a little bit, but they've been right there in this area the whole time. This is what they know. This is everything that has been going on. Everything that is that is normal for these for these early saints is here in New York, and with this section is now going to be the first major uprooting. This is this is like the first major trial of faith in moving. And what, what I what I have been paying attention to the last uh, few sections here is that Joseph doesn't know what's about ready to happen. None of these saints do. None of these saints know the persecutions that they are going to face over the next 14 years. And it's just going to be persecution after persecution after persecution. They're, it's going to look up for them for a little bit of time, and then they're going to grow. And it, it, it's... It's like that analogy. I don't know if you've seen those those internet images of like a weed growing up between like a cement crag in the middle of like an, an asphalt desert. <laughs> and, I, and I don't want to say the church is a weed, but it's kind of like a weed. It's like it's like in in these. It's a in, flower. In, okay, it's a flower. It's a dandy. It's like a dandelion. <laughs> but if, if you can imagine just in being in these areas and and the inhospitability, the inhospitability. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Let's go with it. Let's go with it. But the church ends up thriving and and growing anyway. And and there's a lot of talk of, of why that's the case and of narratives and the suffering and sacrifice narratives that I know we're going to talk about when we get to those those sections and those verses. But for now, man, they are so brand new and they are still trying to figure all of this out. Now, Sidney Rigdon is Man, he's a pretty powerful figure, and he's going to be there with the saints all the way through Joseph Smith's death. So from here on out, Sidney Rigdon is going to be a major feature in the church narrative all the way up until the time that Brigham takes the saints and Sidney doesn't go with him. And so that's where Sidney's going to take his uh, his cue, and he's gonna he's not going to follow the saints out to Utah. But until then, we're going to be here with Sidney. There's going to be a lot of things that we're going to talk with him about. So this revelation given to Joseph Smith, the prophet, and to Sidney Rigdon in Fayette, they're just commanded to take their to take their leave and to go to the Ohio. So then at that point in just the next month, we're talking about January 2nd of 1831, section 38 is given. And this is just, this is a really interesting section, Ben. There's just so many things here to talk about. Um, I came in in verse eight and nine. That's where I had seen the first thing, but it said that the day soon, this is the Lord speaking, by the way, but the day soon cometh that you shall see me and know that I am for the veil of darkness shall soon be rent. And he that is not purified shall not abide the day. Wherefore, gird up your loins and be prepared. Behold, the kingdom is yours and the enemy shall not overcome. Well, here I see in section, in verse eight of section 38, that this veil of darkness shall soon be rent and that we shall see him. And this is interesting because, again, beatitude language, it's the pure in heart that shall see God. And here we have purified and seeing God in the same verse yet again. They always are going together. These these concepts are just always going. It, it would be it would be one thing for me to go along and, and to read the scriptures and be and to really feel like I'm really stretching this whole beatitude narrative. But when they put the two connected concepts in the same <laughs> verse over and over and over again, right? You're, you're like, you know, this is not, this is not a mistake. 
And then again, we see here in verse 9, Behold, the kingdom is yours, and the enemy shall not overcome. <sighs> again, beatitude language. The final beatitude, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for they shall receive the key for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? And here it is again. Behold, the kingdom is yours, and the enemy shall not overcome. So here we're also dealing with the enemy, though that that which persecutes, that which brings disfavor, and that the enemy who's coming will not overcome. The kingdom is ours. You know, it's just it's it's beatitude language all over again for me. Yeah, I noticed a lot of that stuff reading through section thirty-eight this time. You know, I was looking at the dates on this section, and as I was reading through it, it really fit in really well because if you if you go over and look at the book of Moses. Each of the chapters in the book of Moses says the month and year that it was quote-unquote translated, whatever we want to call this process that Joseph Smith went through to get the book of Moses. You know, and, and, and there's a whole – we could do a whole podcast on, on what translation means to Joseph Smith. In fact, people have done – they've written entire books on this because it's not, it's not translation in terms of like, you know, going from English to Spanish or Spanish to English. There's something, there's a whole lot more going on there. But in any case, Joseph Smith receives, however it is that he does, Moses chapter 7 in December 1830. And then this revelation comes January 2nd, 1831. Now, if you go and read the book of Moses up through chapter 7, and then you come and read this section, every single reference makes sense. In fact, this section, the entire section is heavily steeped in references to Moses, particularly Moses chapter 7. Right here we have at the very beginning, thus saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, the great I am. Okay, at the beginning of the book of Moses, he's speaking to Moses. This is a reference to the statement that he gives Moses, I am sent you, right? Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the same and he uses this phrase multiple times, the same which looked upon the wide expanse of eternity and all the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made. Okay, again, referencing the creation that is discussed in the book of Moses. And then this is a little bit of foreshadowing as to what's going to get more t detail that we get out of the book of Abraham. But we're not going to get that for, well, I mean, Joseph Smith doesn't even come across those for, what does he do? The mummies are like 1838 or something. But then that stuff's not even published for a lot longer. So the saints at large don't get the book of Abraham for decades, <laughs> actually. So in any case, then in verse 2, he says, The same which knoweth all things, for all things are present before mine eyes. This is, again, a reference to Enoch's vision, where Enoch has his, his eyes anointed and then washed, and then he sees everything, and then he starts having the greater vision. So Enoch comes into this relationship and starts seeing everything the way that God sees it. Um, and he says, all things are present before mine eyes. I am the same which spake and the world was made and all things came by me. I am the same which hath, have taken the Zion of Enoch into mine own bosom. So here we have explicitly a reference to Enoch and Zion, which the concept of this as a story and as scripture wasn't within the the Latter-day Saint canon, so to speak, before December 1830. It was all just apocryphal discussions about the Book of Enoch. We don't have anything concrete until we get the translation of the Book of Moses. 
And verily I say, even as many as have believed in my name, for I am Christ, and in mine own name, by the virtue of the blood which I have spilt, have I pleaded before the Father for them. But behold, the residue of the wicked have I kept in chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day which shall come at the end of the earth. So this verse 5 actually was a little puzzling to me. And the reason is because when you go and read Moses chapter 7, these chains of darkness are actually in the context of Satan. So Satan has the great chain and it veils the earth and he looks up and laughs, right? And so this is a little interesting to have the verse here almost um, imply that it's Christ that has put the chains. It doesn't explicitly say that. You know, it says, I kept in chains of darkness. I'm not necessarily saying that, that Christ was the one that put the chains there. But but in any case, you know, that, that verse was an odd reference to the chains when explicitly in the vision of Enoch, it's Satan that has the chain that veils the earth. In any case, we have this uh, concept of darkness across the earth. And this comes into place as we go in through here, the veil of darkness that you talked about in verse 8. And then get over to verse 11. For all flesh is corrupted before me, and the powers of darkness prevail upon the earth among the children of men in the presence of all the hosts of heaven. Here we go again. Vision of Enoch. Okay. And then he jumps into something different here, and this starts referencing or alluding to a couple other scriptural accounts that we have of this concept. So verse 12 says, which causeth silence to reign and all eternity is pained. So I was looking at this, this concept of silence and like what it means here. Why, what does it mean that there's silence after this darkness? So, I mean, I did remember the story of the Nephites, right? So we have Nephi, third Nephi chapter nine and 10. Then again, as, as I was just saying, there's the vision of Enoch. He sees all this darkness. And then in Enoch chapter seven, Enoch feels all of this pain. He feels the sorrow. He, he starts feeling and understanding the depths of the experience of God. And in a scripture that I think says it, in one of the best ways that we have, or at least describes the experience of God, and in one of the best ways that I think we have in the scriptures, is Moses chapter 7. And this is, again, the vision of Enoch that I've been talking about this whole time. Enoch sees all the wickedness on the earth and all the sorrow and the misery. He he starts asking God questions. How how do you how do you deal with this? How can how can this be? How is it that you're God, and yet you still experience all of this terrible, awful, horrible misery by way of, of seeing your children experience, right? Yeah. And the response is extremely profound. And, and like I said, this Enoch's vision here, I think, is one of the more profound things that we have in Scripture. But uh, he gets here in verse 40, Wherefore, for this shall the heavens weep, yea, and all the workmanship of mine hands. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Enoch, and told Enoch all the doings of the children of men. Wherefore Enoch knew, and looked upon their wickedness, and their misery, and wept, and stretched forth his arms, and his heart swelled wide as eternity, and his bowels yearned, and all eternity shook. So this seems to me a very strong correlation here with these verses, right? That all eternity is pained, 
because of the wickedness on the earth. So turning then back over to third Nephi, this is going to get into our discussion a bit that we had when we were doing the Book of Mormon, Come Follow Me, and we were doing Third Nephi's chapter, Third Nephi chapter 9 and 10. Chapter 9 is destruction. The devil laughs. There's total destruction. And then chapter 10, we have this in the first verse. And now, behold, it came to pass that all the people of the land did hear these sayings and did witness of it. And after these sayings, there was silence in the land for the space of many hours. And then comes the voice of Christ talking to them about how he would gather them as a hen gathered her chickens, and that there was all this destruction uh, because of the wickedness and, uh, and so forth. But just that part there about silence, you know, that word silence in this context doesn't come up much in the scriptures. If you go in the topical guide, you can kind of look at, at all the references to silence. But here, silence seems to be this space between the destruction and the darkness, or in some cases explicitly the presence or appearing of Satan or the devil, then you have silence, then you have light, or you have Christ coming. This is the pattern in Third Nephi. This is the pattern in Moses chapter 1, which, like I was saying, is the backdrop for this entire section section 38 because it this was the revelation or the translation that was just received that basically gives all the fuel to this section so i i just thought that was really interesting that he would reference this silence thing and and it's something that i i want to dig more into this all sort of stems from or or the the terminology i think comes from revelation chapter 8 verse 1 where it says that the seventh seal was opened and then there was silence in the heavens for the space of half an hour, right? This almost seems to be referencing that, saying, hey, you know, like the last seal is being opened, the end times are near, right? That I'm, I'm going to come. And so this is all sort of evoking those sorts of imageries for <clears throat> that sort of imagery for all of these people who are very heavily steeped in, in New Testament language. Uh, they've all been studying the book of Revelation all the time. And so they understand that. And so this reference to silence kind of evokes that Christ is coming type of thing. But I think in a, in a more profound and broader sense, we see this pattern when we look at third Nephi and the book of Moses and how it kind of all ties together in this. So I, I anyway, I think there's a lot to be sort of pulled out from that. Um, and so I don't know if you had anything more to add, but. No, I am absolutely fascinated by everything you just talked about. I have nothing to add because <laughs> that, that was just – that was pushing the limits of what I've I've studied on on that. But I love the comparison between Moses and, and to see them at the same time because that really comes back to a lot of things we've talked about as far as the effect and influence of what Joseph Smith is doing on the language that he's using on these revelations. You know, we've said that from the beginning when we started with section one – and crossing that over to section 67, because when Joseph is writing the heading for the, the basically the preamble for the, the section one, when they were going to write this, put these all things in the book of the commandments, they were worried because of Joseph's tone and his language and the language that he used because he's he wasn't eloquent, right? They were kind of embarrassed by the, the way these revelations flowed. 
And so they wanted to get someone who was a little bit more eloquent to be able to write these revelations or transpose them, right? And so that was the moment when the Lord's like, well, I guess it was Joseph. He's like, well, why don't, why don't you try to go get, you know, get a revelation? And, mm-hmm. and that's 67, right? And so it really shows that Joseph is, has a lot of this language is coming through in what he is studying from other sources. And I think that's a really fascinating thing to pull out. Like what you just did here, that language of Moses 7 is coming out here into the text in section 38 and how this happens in other aspects and other parts of, of the scriptures. And so how does this affect and impact how we are to interpret the meaning of what section each of these sections and revelations are given when we are able to find the patterns of what Joseph was doing and what he was reading to be able to bring that out. Is his revelatory process the fact that he's reading a scripture and he has an impression about that, what that means to him at that particular time and place, and that the Lord is impressing upon him the actual meaning of what it meant when it was originally given, or is it a meaning that's given in their current context? And then when he puts it down into the in the text, in a modern day text, what was their context for understanding that scripture? Was it the ancient that was there when they very first wrote it? Or was it the modern context of how it was interpreted? Or is it in a different, a new, uh, like a third context of how the community was receiving this? And so especially when we come across a lot of these verses that seem like this highly, I, I, I don't want to put it in highly negative terms, but it's when, when you read some of these scriptures, it's like there is, this is a highly unstable God. And, and it's like his anger can fluctuate depending on what you do daily. And, and so you never really know what ground you have with God Except for when, and so you can see how they always want to know their status before God, because when you never really know or have a relationship with God, that he's this universally, unconditionally loving God, you're going to wonder your status before the nature of that being all the time. It's just the nature of the beast. And so in this way, you have them, and, and this is the status that these, these men were, were coming to God with. They wanted to know their status. And God was always telling them, I'm pleased with you. I'm not so pleased with you. I'm pleased with this. I'm not pleased with that. And that kind of language of who and what God is pleased with and not pleased with ends up coming out into the text, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and so you begin to see that a lot of the time we're beginning to pull out a lot of these men's insecurities into these revelations. They're putting in what they're putting into it comes out in a lot of what they're getting out of it. But yet what I love what I've absolutely loved this time through the Doctrine and Covenants is how this universally unconditionally loving God comes through the cracks of all of these insecurities, all of these weaknesses. And he's coming out into the forefront. And I love that in verse 14. And now I tell unto you, and you are blessed, not because of your iniquity, neither your hearts of unbelief. For verily some of you are guilty before me, but I will be merciful unto your weakness." Therefore, be strong from henceforth, fear not, for the kingdom is yours. You know, so when you put this into their language, their time, their what they're doing in their life, and how they're understanding things, and you have this God who comes down and says, I'm going to bless you, even though you are full of iniquity, even though your hearts are still in unbelief, I'm still going to bless you. You know, this is this is radical stuff. This is really, 
radical stuff. This level of grace does not exist in their context. From like, if you can imagine from like the Calvinist Puritan era, <laughs> moving forward, even to the the Methodists and the Baptists of their day, this is not this is not normal stuff for this widely wildly forgiving God who is going to come and to bless those who are not earning it. Right, they're not qualifying mm-hmm. for these blessings. And mm-hmm. so this 14 is a really weird, bizarre verse in the context of how they are perceiving God. They're having this general relationship with God. But now I tell unto you, and ye are blessed, not because of your iniquity, not because of your hearts of unbelief, but it, because some of you are guilty. Some of you have hearts that are not believing and you're iniquitous, but because I am merciful. And that just speaks to me. That just comes right off the page and leaps out and, and, and shows how that universally loving God, that God that's always, always already been this way, is coming out of the cracks of these men's cultural understanding and how they're repenting. You know, we've talked about repentance and learning to choose and to see God differently. And that's coming out. I, I, I absolutely love that. So yeah, when you when you talk about Moses 7, and you can bring in that conversation that we had from Third Nephi 9 and 10 and then use those two to be able to then frame this discussion and we can see the language that they're using and how God is using that language to help them understand and to build and we can see how they're trying to formulate these ideas and the ideas that they're formulating at this time. And then we see God coming through those pages in verse 14 and saying, I'm always here, not because you've earned it, but because I love you and I'm merciful. You can begin to see that there's just a lot of beauty going on here. Yeah, I, I see that through 14 and 15. You know, I, I, we we bring it up all the time, but the the story of Christ and, and the woman taken in adultery here, we have no denial of her guilt, but just no condemnation. So I will be merciful into your weakness. Therefore, be ye strong from thenceforth, right? Go thy way and sin no more. Fear not, for the kingdom is is yours. I like that there. Fear not, for the kingdom is yours. Often, you know, there's this like anxiety. Am I saved or am I not saved? Right? And the Lord's telling them, hey, that's that's not the discussion right now. (laughs) The kingdom's yours. I've already told you it's yours. It's yours. You've got it. You have it already. Can we move on to the next question here? (laughs) Which is... (laughs) Work with me, participate in my work, learn who I am. Let me teach you what this kingdom is all about. Don't have anxiety about whether you're in it or not. You already are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have it. Okay? Let go of that anxiety. You're here. Now we're here. Now let me show you how it's done. How you, how you operate in the kingdom. Like how we actually be. Christ. And so I, I just, it's fascinating to me, you know, moving on from that in terms of the, um, this worthiness and being in the kingdom, uh, we have verse 18 and I hold forth. So hold forth is, is giving offering, right? It's not holding back. It's not holding back something. It's holding forth. I hold forth and deign to give unto you greater riches, even a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, upon which there shall be no curse when the Lord cometh. Okay, so is this a literal 
piece of land? Or is there something symbolic, metaphorical here? Or is it both? I mean, is there the, the land where they're supposed to go? Is there like literal milk and honey there? So obviously this land flowing with milk and honey, this is a, an Old Testament reference when Moses and the children of Israel come up on the, the mountain and they see the, the land before them and then they go into it. They say, oh, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And so it's this, this promised land that has everything that you would need in that. So there's a lot of symbolism here, allusions to Old Testament things going on. Whether the Lord intends here an actual specific piece of land that the saints thought that he meant or not, I think is beside the point because the Lord can make any land that he chooses. He says it in here. This is what he's talking about. The earth's my footstool. I can do anything with the earth that I want. The Lord can make any land a promised land, a chosen land. The point isn't some specific piece of land. The point is whether we are willing to be in the kingdom that he's just given us and actually operate in it as he's trying to teach us to do. So this word Dane is not, it's not a word that we use. It's an archaic English word, but it was still in use at the time. You look it up in the Webster 1828 dictionary. It says to think worthy, to vouchsafe, to condescend to grant or allow, to condescend, to give to. Okay, so if we say, I hold forth and think you worthy to give unto you greater riches, even a land of promise. I think this goes a little bit along with your discussion that you have had about worth and worthiness, that the Lord already is telling us that we are worthy of the kingdom. It's ours. We have it. He's offering it to us. He's handing it to us. All we have to do is take it and live into it as he's taught us. It's not, you know, it's not a, this isn't a transactional thing. You know, it's not like, okay, I'll give you the kingdom if you do this. He's like, no, it's, it's yours. Really take it. Like the gift has your name on it. (laughs) Like (laughs) open it. (laughs) I just see that coming through multiple times in here. And he's like telling them, you know, go ahead and open it. Go ahead and open it. Well, don't I need to, you know, do this and this for No, you don't. You just need to open it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. Over when I was recording over at uh, Latter-day Contemplation with Christopher and I stepped in for Riley, we were able to talk about meekness. And I, I really, I think meekness may be right now my favorite beatitude. Whichever one you spoke about the late last. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the last one we talked about was being oh, filled with did. righteousness. Yeah, that's right. You did. <laughs> we did do that one, but... But I, I just, I, yeah, it kind of is. Whatever the last one is that I've really thought about, it's my favorite one. But <laughs> if I'm being honest, um, but what I love about this meekness is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Mm-hmm. And you know, w- w- over there in that conversation that we're having, and I would, I'd suggest anybody go over there to to take a look at it over the latter day contemplation. It's uh, the last episode or two, and. What we talked about was that obviously with the Beatitudes, we've discussed that it's a progressive thing. You can't be work on meekness until you've worked on being poor in spirit and you've mourned and then that leads you to meekness. But this meekness is this moment when you're able to cut loose from the identities of the world through that poverty of spirit, 
when you've finally been able to stand there in your nothingness and your nakedness before God, when you have no connection to the world around you, and yet in this moment, in this universal paradox that the fact that you are not able to plug into anything and nothing is able to plug into you in this world's identity system, you don't belong anywhere. And this universal paradox is that now that you don't belong anywhere, now you belong everywhere. And when Jesus is tempted, for instance, he comes out from 40 days and 40 nights fasting. That This is his emptying. 40 days and 40 nights, he's literally emptying. He doesn't take anything into his body. He's not filling himself at all. He is actually expelling everything for 40 days and 40 nights. And he comes out of that moment, and the first thing that happens is he's tempted by Satan. And these are real temptations. These are real things that he has, he's, he's grasping, grappling with. It's not that they just come along and he's like, nah, whatever, and he just bypasses Satan. These are things that he's actually being drawn to as solutions. And whenever we read about the temptation where Satan leads him up and shows him the kingdoms of the world, and he says, all of these will I give to you if you will bow down to worship me. And the way that we typically answer that is that we're like, of course Jesus isn't going to do that because he, and we look at it as a very Lockean kind of way, right? God mixes a time and labor with something and now it's his. Jesus already owns everything. Yeah, Jesus already owns everything, right? And so it's like, because Jesus already mixed his time and labor in creating the earth, it was already his. And because it's already his, then he obviously recognized that he doesn't need to to worship Satan and to get what's already his, right? And that's how we typically interpret that from that Lockean Western, Western point of view. But that's not what's going on here at all. If the world is Jesus Christ's, it's because he is meek. It's because he is meek that he has inherited the earth. That he invites all to be meek so that they too will be co-heirs with him. That that's what it means to be like Christ. That when he stood there before with Satan, over all of these principalities and the kingdoms of the earth, to be able to use violence and coercion to bring about goodness like we do with the governments of men nowadays, Jesus Christ looked at that and turned away from man's world's solutions and through his meekness recognized he already had inherited it. And so when I look at these verses here in verse 38, and we see here that he's talking about these great riches. And man, if we're not really careful with how we read these verses— Man, this is like going to set up Prosperity Gospel 101. The more more righteous you are, that God is going to reward your righteousness with the almighty buck, right? That that's the way that God works. God wants to make you filthy lucrative. He wants to get you rich because that is what God wants, is God wants you to be rich. And the irony of that, it just, it's just, it's, it's so, it's not what this is talking about. When we talk about inheriting the earth, when we talk about the inheritance in verse 20, and this shall be my covenant with you that you shall have the land for your inheritance and for the inheritance of your children. We're talking about a state of being of meekness 
and inheriting the earth. Now, just like what you said, Ben, was it literal in that they were, he's literally talking about like Missouri and Zion and establishing it? Well, that, that I think that is very dominantly what they are consciously thinking that's saying. But when we look at it from a 2020 perspective in retrospect, as close to 2020 as we can, and at least we see that they did not inherit the land for their children and their children's children. Then at that point, our narrative goes, ah, well, they were just too wicked. They were just too wicked. And so, you know, it will eventually go back when we're righteous and God wants to come back. And then we we readjust our narrative to patch our bad interpretation to begin with. Mm-hmm. But what if God he was here talking to them and trying to get them to understand through that beatitude language that we're already seeing he's talking about, that I have in store for you the whole world. Like I, like I, I gave this message to the people in Israel on my earthly ministry. I walked up to a mountain and I turned around and I gave them the beatitudes about the meek inheriting the earth. I gave it to the Nephites. I'm giving the same thing to you guys that the meek inherit the earth and all these things and all the riches, everything that can possibly be that God is. And that's that. And that's the importance of that blessedness that Makarios, that if God were here, this is what he would be doing. And we see that when Jesus Christ came to earth, that is what he was doing. That Jesus Christ is the archetype of our humanity was doing. Jesus Christ was not out trying to get the almighty buck. That's what Satan tempted him with. And he turned away from it. Now, that's not to say that having wealth is an evil or a sin, but that's not the fulfillment of what this is talking about. In fact, it even says later on in verse 39, And if you seek for riches, which is the will of the Father to give unto you, you shall be the richest of all, for you shall have the riches of eternity. So God flips the script. He's like, if you think that this or these riches things are, are about your temporal here and now, yeah, you, you just missed it. The riches here are these riches of eternity. And, and that, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit last week um, or the week before when we talk about the importance of our eternal, our, our, our taking an eternal look and our natures, that, that it's important for us to take an eternal look into who and what we are. And that gives us the ability of enduring the now. And we talked about how living in the present is living with an eternal outlook. Because you realize that just like with God, everything is the, the now. Everything is right here, right now. It's living in this present moment. It's letting, it's not taking any thought for the morrow, for the morrow is going to take care of its thing for itself, but it's dealing with what you deal with today. And that brings amount of peace that is just beyond the wealth of the world. It really is. I mean, money, you know, I, w- there's some meme I saw just on uh, Facebook the other day and I can't quote all of it, but it was like, money can buy you a bed, but it can't buy you sleep. <laughs> right. And or that kind of peace that comes from just a good night's sleep. And it's a lot of the same way. Money can buy a lot of things, but it can't buy peace. And it can't buy the awe of God. And those things in my life I've recognized are far, far more meaningful to me than all the money I've ever made in my life. 
you know, you're talking about this concept of the eternal now. And, you know, that's, that is a theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon at the Temple, of, of us living in the moment, not being anxious about the, the future or being, you know, holding on to the baggage of the past. And, and it really fits in here when we, we, we see verse 2 from section 38. It says, The same which knoweth all things, for all things are present before mine eyes. And this is what Christ is saying. He's it's like, I'm living in the eternal now. Everything's here with me. And this is what happens in Enoch's vision as well, right? Because Enoch sees everything past, present, future. It's all one eternal now that Enoch experiences. Those scriptures just put it beautifully. I think that um, if you want to understand section 38, I think going and reading probably all the book of Moses, but at the very least chapter 7, would really gives a, a really good context to it. You know, when you're talking about meekness and inheritance, I the concept came to my mind that the irony of it is, is that the the more we try to hold on to those earthly possessions and and lands, so to speak, the the more likely they are to slip away. You know, we actually see that in the example of the the saints here, because they're promised these lands that they think is is this you know literal physical place, which they're told is, but they get the cart before the horse on it, and they're told they'll inherit this if they're meek, right? And the Lord gives them some very specific stipulations on how this is all supposed to go about. They reject that, insist that the land is theirs because they said so, <laughs> march in there with armies and try to take it for themselves, or or they revile against the persecutions and just you know, turn the whole thing into the the Missouri War, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, you know, we haven't gotten to that point yet, but we're going to see here that the, their very refusal to, to live a life of meekness means that they lost that perceived inheritance. And I say perceived inheritance because the Lord was always willing to to provide that for them. They just had to open their eyes and see it. But all that they wanted was like this specific piece of land, right? And then they went to Nauvoo and they're like, oh, I guess this could work. (laughs) It's like, yeah, anywhere can work, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Like anywhere can work. The point is not the land. The point is living the life that Christ has, has taught us about, right? And then it becomes yours because of of the process that you're going through, but not because you have the power to, to physically take it, but because of who, you know, who you have, you know, the, the nature that you've realized in yourself because of meekness. The more that we hold on to the effect, which might be this, this inheritance and step away from the cause, which is the meekness, you know, then that just slips away. Yeah. Because the, the effect is it comes just naturally as as an emanation from that way of being. And I love what you said there about, you know, when I go out out to the the beach because the beach is my happy place to go out to the ocean and there in the beach is my is my favorite happy place. But to go down into the sand and to try to grasp a handful of sand in the water and as the as the water just pulls over it, it just 
melts away in your hand. And, and it seems to be the harder that you try to hold on to it, the more it just slips away. Mm-hmm. And I see this very exact thing going on here that the point was never the particles and the specks of land. It, it, it just, it's just so bizarre to me, the concept of just the, this attachment to this, like this particular square piece of earth that I'm going to claim is mine. And I, you know, we've talked about this before. Our culture has changed. I don't have that attachment to the, to the land, right? But that has, that was a thing in, in many cultures and many civilizations where they actually had this great desire to be attached to, to land. And especially in their day and age when they were much more associated and connected to the land, these are important themes to them. And they're going to understand them in these ways. But yet there are greater lessons that the Lord is trying to teach them through using the land as a metaphor to these other greater principles. And, and it never gets to that greater principle and, and what he's actually trying to get at. They say stuck in the rudimentary mode. It's almost like God is using the, the, the physical land as a mode to recognizing this higher land, right? Or this higher mm-hmm. principle, as it were. Mm-hmm. And all they do, just like you said, they get stuck on putting the card before the horse. It's like they want the land. God gave me the land. I want the land. And we're going to see that they went in there into Missouri with the attitude of, this is my land. God gave me this land and you're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> and that doesn't, that, that never landed well. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that caused, that caused a lot of problems. And that doesn't justify the violence that happened against the saints, but it does put it into context where we begin to understand why it happened. That the violence against the Latter-day Saints did not happen just in a vacuum of hatred. It wasn't just that they walked into a valley completely perfect and righteous and and Satan just waged and waxed in the hearts of the Missourians to kill them because they were an evil people killing the Mormons. That's just not the way it, it played out. And so, yeah, we begin to, we begin to see already the, the bedrock of how the Missouri persecutions happened because as the Lord is calling them into that moment, into those things that are going to happen— they just kind of missed that meekness mark, right? And so here we see in verses, uh, verse 21, Behold, I say unto you that in time you shall have no king nor ruler, for I will be your king and watch over you. Well, that's awesome. You know, in 1844, they made Joseph the king, so I guess that wasn't going to be the, it wasn't going to be the <laughs> thing yet. that they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet anyway, right? And in verse 22, Wherefore, hear my voice and follow me. And you shall be a free people, and you shall have no laws but my laws when I come, for I am your lawgiver, and what can stay my hand? Well, this is this is radical talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, n- now we're going all the way back to like Augustine between Anarchy the two shallow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This this is getting into some pretty wild anarchy stuff, but we we begin to realize even going back to augustine how he posits these two kingdoms right the the kingdoms of men and the kingdoms of god and he's the yeah. first one to really separate the spheres of those two kingdoms but here in this verse 22 this is in in 1831 this is in 1831 when he's they're being told hear my voice and follow me and you shall be free Freedom's not going to come from your political establishment. Freedom's not going to come from your social establishments. Freedom's not going to come from anything, but it's going to come from me. And you're not going to follow any laws, but my laws. And what can stay my hand? 
I mean, this is when we really think about this, this is radical because it's not going to be until section, uh, what, 58, where, you know, he's going to say, keep the laws of the land. He that keeps the laws of the land hath no need to break, you know, break the laws of God. And then again is section 98, but then section 98 is going to be amended with the council on 50 uh, revelation that the Lord says you're no longer under obligation to adhere to the constitution. Um, that revelation got buried and uh, <laughs> <laughs> conveniently, and we didn't know about it until about five years ago when the, when the church finally released the council on 50 notes and minutes. But Well, it didn't fit the, the narrative and, and identity the church was forging for itself, you know, in the late 1800s because of, of the nature of the, you know, the, the United States expanding and everything. And it, it's really fascinating in this context because, you know, as the states move out west and they quote unquote inherit that land, right? Well, then, then the U.S. government starts coming and then there's this fear again, right, of them losing it. And so, there's multiple responses and how this goes and how it all plays out. But in the context of this section, it's, it's very interesting to see how, how some of that fear of, of losing made them sort of double down a little bit more on those, those narratives, the, the exclusionary narratives, the, the other narratives, the nationalist types of narratives that separated them. But then also to, to finally acquiesce and say, okay, well, we're going to actually adopt the American nationalist narrative as our own. Anyway, it's just, it, it's very interesting how it fits into these verses here. Yeah, it is. In verse 23, I love how it's going to start moving, I guess in verse 24 and 25, and let every man esteem his brother as himself and practice virtue and holiness before me. And again, I say unto you, let every man esteem his brother as himself. So this takes us back to the two great commandments. To love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what an interesting place for this to be right here. Because we're talking about inheriting the earth. The meek, and, and, and I love the juxtaposition because the meek inherit the earth. The poor in spirit, the poverty, the absolute abject poverty, they inherit a kingdom. Those who are mourning, they inherit being comforted. Those who are meek inherit everything. And so it's supposed to be this, this juxtaposition between, of, between opposites. And so now that we've gone through that whole thing and we've realized what it takes to be able to manifest this belonging everywhere, now we are going to start bringing other people into this conversation. Now we're going to start bringing in and loving our, our neighbor and being able to esteem our brother as ourself. What, why, would th why would these verses be here? I, I think they fit perfectly with the verse 22, you know, because he says, you shall have no laws, but my laws when I come for I am your lawgiver. I mean, what did Christ say? There's two great commandments to love God, love your neighbor. And uh, I don't know if you were going to get into this discussion, but basically, you know, all of all of political philosophy about law and legislation and, and rights and everything like that begins with the rejection of this dictum right here to esteem our brother as ourself. So as soon as you reject that, then you start entering into the political philosophy realm where you have to create a duality and you have to, you know, figure out rights and you have to figure out legislation and justice and and all these things that go along with that, which get really really interesting and intricate and and you know, you just really can dig into that 
that fruit of the knowledge of, of good and evil. <laughs> you really can't, you know. But it all starts right here when you reject that. And I just think it's very easily contextualized by verse 22. Yeah. I love that. Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was I was going to get into that very thing. No, that was You said it much better than I was... <laughs> Plan to talk about it in verse twenty seven. I absolutely I love this too. In verse twenty seven and, and twenty nine, we're getting some some verses I love. But this I have given unto you as a parable, and it is even as I am. I say unto you, be one. And if you are not one, ye are not mine. This is this is such a fascinating verse for me because for most of my life I have interpreted this as Christ bringing in and rejecting people. Some people he brings in, some people he rejects. And this way of thinking, this this way of looking at God is really what becomes the bedrock of that uncertain relationship we have to God. And in a lot of Protestant, in Mormonism's adoption of Protestantism, we have then created a checklist gospel you know, so long as you check enough boxes off and you're doing everything what you can and what you, everything you can do, then you can know your place before God. And that's how we interpret if you are prepared, you shall not fear. Because if we've maximized and wasted all of our lives to be able to do everything we can to prepare for every contingency we can think of, then we won't fear when everything happens. But this begins to set up follies when you take it to the extremes and we take it to the end of that thought. Right? When we actually take these ways of thinking to their ultimate conclusions, kind of to an ad absurdum, we begin to realize that these ways of thinking just aren't, they're just not feasible. They're okay with moderation and, and they're okay when we really don't push back against them. But the minute we push back against some of these narratives, they just fall, crumble and fall apart. And so when we, when we see here that I say unto you, be one, and if you are not one, you are not mine. You know, Richard Rohr has, he's among my favorite theologians, and he has this statement that I've used, I've quoted over and over again, but it's about unity. And, and he says, and he had said at one, it was on his podcast and I wrote it down. I've shared it a dozen times in, in a dozen different places, but he talks about how unity and uniformity are always confused. That when we think of unity, we all Whenever we kind of start off in our, you know, in our low-level discipleship thinking, we always confuse unity and uniformity as if to be one, we all have to be the same. We all have to be uniform. We all have to think the same, believe the same, do the same, dress the same, come and present ourselves the same. It just become kind of a Stepford, a Stepford church, right? Full of Stepford husbands and Stepford wives. And Man, I've been in some wards that it, you couldn't tell the difference. But in this way, unity is actually diversity that's held together with love. I love you to do it differently than I do. And when I heard him say that for the first time, when I heard Richard Orr say that for the first time, unity is diversity that is held together by love. I love you to do it differently than I do. I immediately thought of this verse and of, of these verses when it says that let every man esteem his brother as himself, practice virtue and holiness before me. And then I thought of the 11th article of faith. We claim the privilege of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege to let them worship how, where, or what they may. 
We love them to do it differently than us. And that is unity. And in that, we allow all people to find their own path. And we love them, even as we love ourselves to be able to, that God loves us and he is patient with us. Going back to verse 14, he's patient with us. He's blessing us, not because of our righteousness, not because we've earned it, not because of any other reason, but because he's merciful. And that's how he treats us. He's one with us, not because we've checked all the right boxes, not because we believe all the right things, not because we purge our hearts of iniquity. He's becoming one with us and he's blessing us because he's merciful. And we turn around and we give that exact same grace and mercy to everyone else. And that is the beginning of unity. And so if we are not in that unity, that's what Christ does, is he brings everyone into that unity, into that acceptance through the love of God and through the love of each other as ourselves. And it's in that way that that's what the Christ archetype stands for. And if we are not in that grace of love for God and for ourselves and for each other, we are not living to our true self. And that's now how I see that God's not there and he's not simply there rejecting like, yeah, I'm rejecting you and I'm accepting you. I'm rejecting you and I'm accepting you. This is God is bringing us all in. We are already there. And if we can't see it and if we're choosing not to see it and if we're not choosing to see all of our brothers and sisters as always already being worthy again, then we're, it's just, it's, it, we're not there in that Christ archetype. We're not tr- seeing our true self there. Yeah, I definitely see that at two different levels here that I think that this applies at. One is in, in our interpersonal relationships and how we view each other. But I think it also has to do with us as individuals. So like, I say unto you, be one. So like, the you here could be, you know, in English, we don't have a plural for the you. We don't say y'all, <laughs> at least not in the scriptures. <laughs> so <laughs> this could also be talking about individuals as well. And I think it could be applied in that way. I think it works both ways. And um, it's actually pretty profound, you know, that it works both ways. So he's talking to us as individuals, right? Be one. Don't be this false self and true self and back and forth and, you know, all these things. Be as I am. You know, I am one. And um, bring out your true self, which is Christ. That's your true self when you act in in that capacity. So I I think uh, that's another way to see it. Yeah. You know who's someone who actually, as I'm thinking about this, who exhibits this in my life that I've seen? So one of our editors who edits this podcast, her name's Catherine Hamilton. Hi, Catherine. She's going to hear this later on. <laughs> and Catherine is one of the most special people you will ever meet. And she she embodies to me and anyone who who knows her this the embodiment of someone who just is the, they just exude themselves. Is this this is who I am? And who she is is just a wonderful and a beautiful person. And she lives in Bakersfield here in the same city that I do. And she has stories of 
of going out and taking care of the homeless and go up driving around. And, and I've heard her share the story before. So Catherine, forgive me, but I'm, I'm going to tell this story and I'm going to try to remember it because it's been a little bit of time since, uh, since she shared it with me. But she had driven around one time just over and over again, and she had taken her car through this through this uh, car wash because we have these car washes in Bakersfield. And if you you know you pay $30 a month or whatever, you can go through the car wash unlimited. <laughs> and uh, and so she's in the car wash once, and she's going around, and she's going around, and she's going around, and, she, and she, she's always got stuff loaded up in her, in her car um, ready to, to pass out to any homeless that she sees and people on the street wherever she feels impressed to do so. And so she always has that uh, that in her mind. And she kept on going through and she's like, no, we got to go through again. She says, man, that was a clean car, but the kids were happy. So I just kept on going through the car <laughs> until finally, you know, they went through at one point and she sees someone, you know, I, I believe it was a homeless man pushing his cart. And uh, she goes, I just felt impressed. That was who I was supposed to talk to. So she pulls over around, she gets out and she asks the guy, she says, do you need some water? And, and he said, you know, he said, yes. And, and there was a conversation that ensued. And as she always does, she asked him and she says, Hey, can I pray with you? And he says, I don't believe in God. And she says, well, that's a problem. And he said, why? And she said, because God's the one who sent me through that car wash a bunch of times and has sent me here to give you water. So, and I think Catherine, forgive me if, if I'm, if I, the way I remember the story is, is she said, you may not believe in God, but he believes in you. And he's here for you, watching over you. I'm the, and he told me to bring you this water. So do you want the water? <laughs> so <laughs> gave him the water, right? And then she prayed with him. And that was a time where she was able to pray with him. And it's, it's in that moment. And, and as I've thought about these, these riches about inheriting the earth and about, and about being full of these riches and about loving our neighbor and about being meek. And just following those promptings whenever we follow those promptings and being true to ourself, being, being there with another human being authentically, right then, right there in the raw way. You know, especially with homeless, I, I remember a friend of mine, and I think you know him too, uh, Rich Gallivan. There was, uh, he's another example in my life who, of a man who befriends the, the downtrodden and the homeless all the time, who just walks up and starts talking to him. He'd been in a BYU class when he was talking to me once about how the one thing that the homeless say that they miss the most and that they desire the most is someone to talk to. Mm -hmm. And, and to, to be in that, in, in that mental space, to be able to sit down and just at a moment's notice to be one with another human being. And that's really hard because in our daily day-to-day -day lives, whether or not it's someone who is downtrodden or oppressed or just someone who is there in our life, but to have a moment of authenticity with another human being, to connect at a real human level where we're not picking up our phones, we're not distracted, but we're just, we are there present. And I think for me, that's one of the initial steps that I've taken to trying to connect authentically with other people, to be one with them, is to try to be there authentically with them in that moment. And that's really hard for me, not because I don't have a desire to, but because, but because I'm so ADD <laughs> and how fast, like my brain jumps back and forth. I squirrel faster than any, any five people I know put together. And so to be there in that moment for me is, is one of those uh, things that I'm very conscientious of, and I have to make myself conscientious of those moments, but that, that makes it all the more meaningful when it happens. 
So when we read here, to be even as Christ is, to be one, and when we are one, we are his, we are being brought into that conversation to do exactly what Jesus would do if he were here. And that brings us back to that beatitude conversation of blessedness, that blessedness, that makarios, that if this is what God would be doing if he were here too. Yeah. Um, I've had experiences like that and you've taught me that there's people that they have material needs and we can meet those and, and those are important to meet. But uh, if we really want to do good or we really, really see the way of Christ, that it's not just about meeting the material needs of people, you know, people they need friends. And um, so it's it's more than just, as your friend talked about, as, as Catherine was talking about, that it's not just giving water, you know, it's, it's being with them, it's praying with them, it's seeing them for who they are and, and meeting those more than the superficial needs. Yeah. You know, and, and that really brings in that as we come down here to verses to, to verse 29, there, there's a different way of looking at this verse than I've ever looked at it based on this conversation. Ye hear of wars in far countries, and you say that there will soon be great wars in far countries, but ye know not the hearts of men in your own land. You know, the way I've interpreted this forever until just this very moment has been a matter of that you you hear of wars in far countries and you say that there will soon be great wars in far countries, but but you don't know the the hearts of your own leaders that are causing wars and contentions in your own land. Mm-hmm. And that's the way that I've always interpreted. But see, but as we've been having this conversation is as we've been pulling in this this new way of looking at it, it seems to be it's standing out differently to me because it's that, hey, you're going to hear of all of these wars and contentions and you're going to say that, hey, some of that is going to come here to you. But are you there to be authentic with the people of your next door neighbor? Do you know how to love your neighbor? Do you know how to be there with the hearts of the person who lives next door to you? And for the people who are in your direct, your, in, in your immediate life, do you know their heart? How, how, how are you with them? You know, we get distracted with all of these things that are outside of our control, thousands and thousands of miles away, contentions that occupy our minds and, and the unknown. But do we really understand the very people who are next to us? Do we know their hearts? I think that's a valid point there, you know, that we talk about there being contention in this or that place. But what are we doing actually to promote peace here and now? between ourselves and those around us. This sort of evokes a little bit from section 98 for me. 98.17 says, Wherefore, renounce war and proclaim peace and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, right? That the way that we become peacemakers, to get more into Beatitudes here, is by doing that, is, is by getting to know those around us. And knowing their hearts, so to speak, right? That's how we can actually find the ways to to promote peace. Yeah. You know, I love that. 
I, 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 in fact, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write this, <laughs> I'm gonna write this down. Put this in the margins over here to, to, to think about this differently because man, that really, that really landed for me differently right just now. To, to think about what we can do in our personal lives and in the lives that we come into contact with in our, in our own communities. I'll tell you, this informs these next verses as well. Now that I think, now that I'm reading them. Yeah, what, what stands out to you there? I tell you these things because of your prayers. Wherefore, treasure up wisdom in your bosoms, lest the wickedness of men reveal these things unto you by their wickedness, in a manner which shall speak in your ears with a voice louder than that which shall shake the earth. But if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. And that you might escape the power of the enemy. You know, this is interesting because the power of the enemy, often we think about, oh, that, that means somebody that's going to come attack me. But what is the power of the enemy according to the Beatitudes? Well, that if we suffer persecutions for Christ's sake, the enemy has no power, right? So that ye might escape the power of the enemy and be gathered unto me a righteous people without spot and blameless. Yeah, that's different. Yeah. I like that with with verse 30. To treasure up that wisdom so that when when the wickedness when the other men are living in their false self and they are living in the pain and the trauma of their own lives and that they are shouting this pain and this trauma that you don't have to get wrapped up in it. You know, I can't help but think of the last election and everything that was going on in the country for yeah. Oh, for so long with, and, and even now the vitriol and the, and the hatred and the animosity between, between groups. I mean, we can pick dozens of social layers of animosity and we can pick political layers of animosity. We can pick layers of animosity between people in our own faith, in our own faith and belief traditions. But here the Lord is telling us, listen, the people who are in their trauma, who are in that false self are shouting the contention because it's just trauma on parade. That really is what it is. It's people's trauma. It's it's like it's just like going back to Cain again for the 150th time. It's the fear, yeah. The fear, the inability for us to be able to to speak our trauma that ends up solidifying that need for justice because that becomes our fear and need for order. Somehow that if people have a fear of punishment, that'll create order. And yet God is here saying, no, listen, unity, unity is love that's held together. And, or I'm sorry, unity is diversity that's held together by that love. And so don't be susceptible to the, to the frailties of men who are living in their traumas and who are shouting these, these contentions. And this, this preparedness has everything to do with that beatitude emptying and all of these things that we've talked about. That's the preparedness there. It's a spiritual preparation. Now, maybe that will lead at some point to a physical preparation. You know, my wife was, you know, we, we moved around <laughs> for like the first 10 years of our life. We moved around like 20 times, 20, you know, and by the time we moved into the house we're in now, you know, it's been what, 50, 16 years and we've moved, I don't know, 24, 25 times. And in a lot of the wards that we lived in, she was called as the emergency specialist coordinator. And so she, she literally wrote a little book on emergency preparedness. Mm -hmm, She'd mm -hmm. been in it for so long. And so she put together a bunch of stuff and I, I know it's been eight years ago, but the one thing that she always would teach in all of the ward 
lessons that she would give on the fifth Sunday, and there's always that fifth Sunday lesson, right, is the one thing we need to be prepared in is spiritual preparedness. There is absolutely zero way to be physically prepared for every possible contingency that can ever have ever happen. Right. It's it's folly to try to think you can do it. To be spiritually prepared, that is where we lose fear. And why do we lose fear? Because we no longer live in the false self and the temporal ego that ends up connecting us to the earth and to what the earth is going to to do against us. Once we stand in that true self that is the the recognition of the being that God has created and we live in that eternal now, there's nothing that can happen to us that will cause us pain. It's it's like President Nelson in that airplane and, and even uh, with uh, this his recent Easter message, he talked about the plane again and about how he was at peace. He's He's headed to his demise, but he's at peace. And in that singular moment, he had peace knowing that he was he was okay so yeah I, it, these verses are, do change and have changed for me even as we've been talking that's that's absolutely fascinating i love it you know you talk about spiritual preparedness versus like temporal preparedness and the section we just did uh before i guess it was last week where the lord says all things are spiritual unto me you know it's not temporal and spiritual all things are spiritual unto me so i think about preparedness and and often when when we talk about temporal preparedness stuff and realizing how this fits into this discussion we're having here and then also sermon on the mount and and some of the things jacob talks about you know jacob says that before you seek for riches seek ye the kingdom of god and um, once you once you obtain that hope then you might seek riches but what will you seek them for because you're already spiritually prepared what will be your purpose for those things. It will be to bless others, right? To reach out and bless others. So why is it that we're really only concerned about being spiritually prepared? Because that covers everything. Because once you're spiritually prepared, then you know exactly how you're supposed to go about blessing others. Maybe that will be through physical means. And and this section starts to get into it, right? Verse 35, and they shall look to the poor and the needy. But you know, I, so often we hear in the context of, you know, like food storage or whatever like that, inevitably, right? You'll be in a meeting and it's like, oh, you know, and make sure you get your guns too, you know, like, because you got to defend that food with your guns. <laughs> it's like, right. yes, that's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants to shoot other people <laughs> that need your food, right? <laughs> okay. This is why you spiritually prepare first. <laughs> okay. Because what is that food for? It's for blessing other people. It's not for hoarding. That's not the purpose, right? <laughs> yeah, like the um, widow's mite or, or the widow at the widow and uh, and Elijah during the, the sure, time. sure, yeah, and and you know maybe if I'm not saying that like if you spiritually prepare, the Lord will tell you to get food. Maybe He will or maybe He won't. You know that that's going to be another thing. I'm saying just what Jacob said. You know that if you seek first the kingdom of God, then those other things will be added unto you as needed, as the Lord directs, you know, day to day. So, you know, this section really, really fits in with that understanding and that narrative here where he has the people gathering together, they're caring for the poor, they shall look to the poor and needy, administer their relief, that they shall not suffer and send them forth to the place which I have commanded them. You know, I, I think there's a whole lot to that in terms of 
how even in pr- in a practical sense how we treat as a society the poor and the rejected and the marginalized will have direct effects on the contention level overall and our ability to establish peace among ourselves and then ultimately you know in a broader social context yeah i love that I love that. You know, and one of the things that, uh, that you were talking about there about God taking care of us reminded me of a story. I think I've already shared it before, but it's of a, of a former employer that I have here in town. Um, I've worked with, I've worked for him, him, him and his pest control company, and he actually helped me get established with my pest control company. But uh, he was, uh, he's just a great man. He's, he's a great Christian. He has a great love of God. Um, he's not LDS, but one of the things that he's taught me over and over and over again. And it's one of his famous, his famous and favorite phrases. And, and, and I think he brings it up maybe every time I talk with him, if not me, at least 90% of the time is that God gives you what you need the minute you need it, not a second before and not a second after. The first time I heard him say that, I'm like, nah, that's a, that's a nice cliche. <laughs> and then I lived, and then I saw him practice and live this over and over and over again. And then there's a story I heard of President Oaks, and I forget what uh, what general authority or other member of the Twelve was with him, and they were busy for a, trying to get to a state conference in I think Seattle or something. And how they were busy, they were hurrying, they were going fast, they they, they were they were doing their work quickly and trying to be efficient, but they kept on hitting roadblocks. And whenever they hit roadblocks, President Oaks was like, okay, whatever. And he'd just go over and he'd sit down. You know, you push it as much as you possibly can. And when there's nothing else that presents itself, you just sit down. And it reminds me of Gandalf there in that cave where he's like, well, whenever he, I come to a dead end and I don't know what to do, I just sit down, right? And, uh, silence. and so <laughs> silence. And then the answer presents itself and in how that worked in his life and how President Oaks went through and, and uh, they just as if it had been exactly planned that way to the second everything opened up so that they made their trip. And I think one of the things that we need to recognize, though, is that if they wouldn't have been able to make the trip, that would have been okay, too. Mm-hmm. That you work your, you work to work and you keep on putting it in. And especially when you're on an errand with, with that relationship with God, everything is okay. And whatever the result is going to be, we don't live in an outcome-based. I've given up outcome-based discipleship a long time ago. I just, I, I couldn't find any joy or any lasting good fruit in that way of being. Where I lived my life to try to get the fruit of any one thing or another. Because at that point, when you live a life of that kind of chasing after expectations to realize those kinds of expectations, oh man, that was a miserable life. But when I learned to recognize that I could just sit with God, and sometimes I sit in the nothingness, and I've talked a lot about that, about just sitting with the nothingness that kind of everything ends up coming into perspective. Those are the great moments. Those are the best moments for me. And sometimes I I, I don't want to search, you know, go searching out, out for it and to try to recreate certain moments because at that point I've recognized in my life, it's like trying to hold the sand of the sea that we just talked about. But when God gives you what you need in the moment you need it, not a second after, not a second before, sometimes that doesn't happen like I think it's supposed to. 
And sometimes I think that God wasn't there. But then I begin to recognize that when I truly live that kind of life, when I truly, I truly live that kind of discipleship and devotion, I can look back over my life and I can see the plot points of how God was there walking with me and there with me the whole step and the, the whole way. And even if God wasn't determining my future, and I don't like to think about God as like the determined person who's determining and like pushing you down the river of life and like keeping you off the embankments and making you go in a certain place. But that our, the point is, is that we're choosing, we're going down the river with, a, with our own oar, with our own canoe, having our own adventure. And he's there with us, protecting us and guiding us when, when, when that's, when that's, uh, when that's necessary. But that he largely leaves that uh, open to us. But you know that whole discussion uh, coming around here in verse thirty-three. And from thence, whosoever I shall go forth among all nations, and it shall be told them what they shall do. For I have a great work laid up in store. For Israel shall be saved, and I will lead them whithersoever I will, and no power shall stay my hand. And I love that because it really comes in. I will lead them whithersoever I will. Well, he definitely led the saints into some interesting paths. You know, he led them to one place and he's like, nope. And he led them to another place and they were like, nope. So they brought him back to a third place and then they were like, no. And then they led him to a fourth place. And that was like, you can stay here, but it's not going to look anything like what you think it's supposed to look like. Right. Because it's not about the destination. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I... I'm not sure if you want to do anything in between, but uh, I had uh, some thoughts on verse 39. You know, this really ties up what he means by riches. You know, we're talking about land and riches all these times, but here really gives the contextualization of what he means by this. And if you seek the riches, because he's been, riches have been a metaphor for what he's trying to teach them about, about what it is to be in the kingdom of God. If you seek the riches, which it is the will of the Father to give unto you. Okay. Again, this is going back to what we were talking about before. I deign to give unto you, verse 18. It's it's there. He's already like got his hands stretched out, handing it to us. Ye shall be the richest of all people, for ye shall have the riches of eternity. And it must needs be that the riches of the earth are mine to give. But beware of pride, lest ye become as the Nephites of old. Man, this really evokes a discussion that we had quite a while ago back when we were doing the Book of Mormon uh, episodes. And um, we we talked about it multiple times, but the one I'm thinking of now is when Alma gives his prophecy about what's going to happen to the Nephites. And this is many, many, many generations before, before Moroni, Mormon and Moroni, right? And because he's seeing what's happening among the Nephites as they're getting ready to have this big war, he sees all that's going on and then he prophesies to his son and has him write it down. And he says, this very people, the Nephites, are going to be destroyed. And, you know, we we had this discussion um, and I'll, I'll try to summarize it as to not get too deep into all of this. But, you know, Alma says those words, this very people, but it turns out that it's not this very people because all the people that are alive at that time are already dead by the time the prophesied destruction already comes. So it's not those people. It's also not strictly speaking just the descendants of those people because what happens is that the Nephites and Lamanites intermix a ton in the meantime and then they completely lose their identities altogether. There are no Manorites. It's just a single people, 
right after Christ comes. And then they divide up into Nephites and Lamanites, but it's not along descendancy lines, right? It's not along ancestry. It's along more about ideology and, and, and certain, uh, narratives. And that is where this Nephite narrative comes into play again. And that is what Alma is referencing. And what is it? You know, we, we had a long discussion about what it meant to be a Nephite. And this seems to be referencing it here, right? Beware of pride, lest you become as the Nephites of old. What was it that distinguished the Nephites? They, they really believed themselves to be the chosen people. Because they were descendants, or, or even if not, not literal descendants, they were the cultural descendants of Nephi. Nephi was the one with the sword. Nephi was the king. Nephi was the lawgiver. He was the one with the plates. He's the quote-unquote faithful son, right? He's the protector. And so we talked about this, this underlying thread sort of theme in the Book of Mormon about what it what the culture of the Nephites was. And really when you get down to it, the Book of Mormon does not have very many positive things to say about Nephite culture. In fact, it has a lot more, maybe not more, but it has just as many positive things to say about Lamanite culture as it does Nephite culture. But what the Nephites get in trouble for, so to speak, is their pride. Them thinking they are better than the Lamanites. And man, that ticks the Lamanites off too. <laughs> and you know, that's what, you know, that's what made Laman and Lamuel mad from the beginning is that Nephi, you know, <laughs> was always acting like he was better than them. <laughs> but, um, but this is the Nephite narrative. And it is so interesting to me that it is brought up right here after this long discussion about unity in the church, about riches, about laws and government and how they're supposed to be a people and society and how they're supposed to care for the poor. But watch out lest you become like the Nephites. Why? Because the Nephites became an exclusive culture. And in fact, even when the Lamanites repented and became the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi, you know, the Nephites are like, yeah, you can have some land, but you need to stay in that land. We don't want you mingling among us too much. <laughs> And, and they still kind of made themselves very exclusive. And this, this contributed, in my opinion, to this culture among the Nephites of pride, of a, of a sort of a nationalist tendency that created the superiority complex. And I think this is what Alma saw when he saw them going to war again. He saw this cultural tendency would persist, be resurrected, so to speak, after the, the several hundred years after Christ and and it, that idea, that concept of that that Nephite exclusive prideful culture would what would be what led to their destruction. And so I I know I didn't summarize that very well. I went into it too long. But but I think that's what this is referencing. And so it's it's so fascinating that they would bring that up here. You know, it's like saying, hey, if I know most people have only read the Book of Mormon once at this point, if at all, but Here's one of the main lessons that you can pull out of the Book of Mormon that we're going to reference now. And and it's not the Book of Mormon is not referenced a ton in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so when it is, I think it's important to to talk about it because it's like these are the lessons the Lord intends for the people to be understanding at this point in time from the Book of Mormon. Yeah, that's a it's an interesting point to pull out because again, we are in January of 1831. Right. The church has only been organized for eight months. They've only had the Book of Mormon for nine months. 
And so the Book of Mormon isn't a strong central feature in a lot of their sermons. And it doesn't actually start featuring heavily into a lot of their sermons until much later on. So yeah, for when it does pop up, it becomes a lot more important. And I, yeah, I like what you had to say there about the Nephite culture and about how that was pouring over the Nephites. <laughs> the, Neph the Nephites were in a very interesting people. I sincerely hope at some point we get the Lamanite record to be able to kind of counteract and to see just how nationalistic the Nephites really were versus how accurate they got it. Mm -hmm. It'd be very interesting to see. But in going to section 39, you know, this is this is given to to James Colville. He was a Methodist minister. And in this uh he'd been a Baptist minister for about 40 years. But in in this, he had joined the church and then he just left within <laughs> a couple of days. But what I one of the things I love the most about this section is in five and six, and verily, verily I say unto you that he that receiveth my gospel receiveth me. And he that receiveth not my gospel receiveth not me. And this goes back to what we had, you know, had to say about Christ and about being one and being not in and not being uh, his. And this is my gospel. This is the good news. Repent and receive baptism by water, and then cometh the baptism of fire by the Holy Ghost, even the comforter, which showeth all things and teacheth the peaceable things of the kingdom. That's it. That's my gospel. And this is my gospel. To repent, to be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, and to receive the peaceable things of the kingdom. So when we look at this in beatitude language, repentance is the first beatitude, to be able to shed all of the identities of the world and to see God differently. Then that leads through being filled with a comforter, and from that comforter, we still we lead through those things into the peaceable, blessed are the peacemakers, right? For they shall be called the children of God. And then from the peaceable things of the kingdom, you know, then it starts that persecution into the kingdom again. It starts all over. So here we're seeing the good news of Jesus Christ. This, this is the good news that we can be able to find a way to empty, to be filled and to find peace. You know, there was a, a talk given a little while ago and I thought, um, off the top of my head, I thought it was Neil A. Maxwell. But um, I'm trying to look it up now. It looks like it's actually Jeffrey R. Holland. He gives a talk on the peaceable things of the kingdom. And I think that would be a good context if, if somebody wanted to sort of build on where this verse is, is going with that. So, I, yeah, that, that's the verse that stood out to me as well. You know, I, I like this word receiveth in verse 5 because I think we talked about it, about it last time that receiveth is like an active thing that we do. Right? It's not this passive thing that it's just like coming to us, but like it's, okay, the Lord is handing this to us and we actually, you know, go and grab it and, and take it. You know, we receive it. We say this when we put our hands on someone to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost. We say, receive the Holy Ghost, right? This is something that person has to actively do. You know, it's them them actually accepting what uh, the Lord has to offer for them. And so I like how it says, and he that receiveth my gospel receiveth me. Because when you go through this process of actually experiencing what it means to be baptized, I'm not talking about just the ordinance of actually going under the water and coming back, but like the experience of baptism, which is something different from the ordinance. The ordinance tries to 
teach us what that experience would be so that we recognize it when it happens. But that experience of baptism and the experience of baptism by fire, when we have those experiences along with repentance, that's receiving Christ, right? We are, we say we're taking his name upon us. So we're actually receiving the title Christ. And, and that's, that's powerful to me. You know, we, we symbolize that in the temple as well. Yeah, I love it in the temple. That, that's a great place to, to look and focus on that. Do you have anything else to say about uh, section 39 or 40, Ben? Um, not necessarily. There's, there's a lot of uh, great things in here, but they get repeated as themes in the following sections. And so I think just in, in terms of like keeping the podcast reasonable lengths and stuff, I think we can return to these. <laughs> <laughs> we can return to these themes um, in later sections. So I think that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I think so too. In section 40, I just saw in verse two, the, uh, talking about uh, Colville, and he received the word with gladness initially, but straightway Satan tempted him and the fear of persecution and the cares of the world caused him to reject the word. You know, Satan being there, that accuser, you know, that, that accusing voice within ourselves that ends up telling us that we're not, we're not a part of this, that we're not we're not uh, good enough for this, that we're not, we're not good enough for God. And then we go back to our old patterns of, of belief. And this, you know, this has to deal with so many aspects of life. This isn't just about the church, about whether or not someone joins the church and then leaves the church. This has implications into every level of our lives. This has implications into anything that we come into a new way of being with. And then suddenly we're like, uh, 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 this is too much. And then we go back to the way we used to be. And so this is just, this is just a fascinating, a fascinating uh, way to think about this in every, in other aspects of our lives, besides just the church or leaving the church. When we look at everything that we come into new ways of being with, where we ha- suddenly have Satan coming into that voice coming in that tells us we're not good enough to stand into that. As uh, as Brigham Young said, when, when that when that voice comes, tell it to go back to hell where it belongs. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Well, Ben, I think I've said most of everything I have to say about it too. Yeah, sounds good. Cool, awesome. Well, thanks everybody for listening, and until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan, and I'm Ben Peterson. We'll see you next time.